So this is the seventh talk at the Teachers' Retreat at Springbrook Brook with Stephen Batchelor on the 20th of October 2010. So um, this is our last talk, and uh, I want to begin by just sort of tying up a few little threads and then focusing on a final topic concerning um, uh, the passages in here under the title Self and Others, I think. Going back to yesterday, I think from the discussion there was a bit of confusion. I'd like to just make this clear. The, you have rupa, which refers to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. That um, impacts the organism. You have nama, which is contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention. That's what, as it were, rises up in the mind. And you have vijnana of six types, visual, audial, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, that are aware of what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch. And you have mental vijnana, mental consciousness, that is aware of nama. Is that clear? What was the last mental consciousness? What was the topic Well, it's mano vijnana. Mano. Mano is manas in Sanskrit. And it's a cognate of the Latin mens. You know, mental health. It's the same root as the word mano, manas in Pali and Sanskrit. So, okay, let's just. Okay, so you have what? You have rupa. It's what you see, hear, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. Then you have nama. Contact, feeling, perception intentions, attentions. And then you have vijnana. Visual vijnana, visual consciousness apprehends sights, audio apprehends sounds, gustatory apprehends taste, olfactory apprehends smells, bodily apprehends tactile sensations, and mental consciousness apprehends nama. In other words, this is going back to Jenny's point. I, thought, I, I didn't explain that clearly enough. Um, mental consciousness is aware of nama. That's why nama rupa pachaya vijnana. Nama rupa give rise to consciousness. This is what the Buddha is saying in that passage. I turn with clear wisdom and wise attention. I, ca- I broke through to the understanding that nama rupa gives rise to to consciousness. Rupa to the sense consciousness is nama to the mental consciousness. Now of course all of that is in the context of our experience right now happening in one seamless whole. We've only conceptually broken it up. And the other point which comes back to a comment Jeff made in terms of the, the practicality of that I again made a mistake yesterday when I said that maybe animals also have this way of apprehending the world. That's irrelevant. It might be true. I don't know. The point is that I slipped into becoming descriptive and forgetting that this has to be seen as prescriptive. In other words, this description, this account, (laughs) this account of things um, is... Um, presented in order that it helps us embrace dukkha, let go of craving, stop craving, create a path. Uh, Any other um, reflection upon it or any other claim about it is secondary to its primary purpose. In other words, this teaching um, is of value because it hopefully... Um, helps us to realize our goal as a person. It's part of, it's a practice, not a description, a quasi-scientific description. And uh, this is why I feel that, I feel rather um, 
um, and let's say ill at ease with the idea that Buddhism somehow is equivalent to science in giving us an, ex- an exact objective description of reality. It may be that some Buddhist insights do further our scientific understanding, but frankly that's not the point. The point is to give us tools whereby to flourish as human beings along the process of our life, which we call the Eightfold Path. If a teaching does not help in that regard, you can put it aside. It's of no value. Qua uh, Dharma practice. It might be valuable in other, other, in other respects, but that's not what it was intended for. Now, I think, I think um, uh, what we were talking of yesterday was this whole Nama Rupa Vijnana business therefore really has to be seen as um, another way of understanding Dukkha Parinya, fully knowing Dukkha. That is the practice. It, it is another way of practicing fully knowing Dukkha. Dukkha, as it says in the first sermon, Dukkha, as it says in the first discourse, <laughs> refers to the Panchakanda, the five aggregates. This model of Nama Rupa Vijnana is an extended, and I would argue, more dynamic model of the five aggregates. And as Winton suggested, I think I find it far more useful than the five aggregates because it's, it's a much more processual um, Model and it also somehow shows how all these things somehow interact. Whereas the five aggregates often feels a bit static. I think it's too it's too simple. It doesn't quite catch the complexity of the way the Buddha uh, uh, saw the world. Now, also going back to what we said the day before, my my own experience in in reflecting on these Nama Rupa Vijnana things, is that it's a way into experiencing our reality um, without assuming any kind of dualistic uh, split between mind and body. I think it's beautifully clear in that we don't have um, a picture of the world that is founded on the idea that there's a body and there's a mind. We see how the two are totally intermeshed. In fact, to think of the two is already problematic in the way that Nama and Rupa are. Nama Rupa becomes Nama and Rupa. Big mistake, in my humble opinion. Now, as one um, reflects, and again, each time that we pay attention to contact, we pay attention to feeling, we pay attention to sound, smells, taste, touches, which is all integral to the practice of awareness, it might be helpful to uh, configure what the totality of what we're experiencing within this framework. And I think that might also lead to a, a, a more holistic and a more um, processual and dynamic sense of what it is we are being aware of. To break down this problem we often have in meditation where we become rather fixated on an object and it becomes rather blah. We just look at it a bit harder and nothing happens. We get bored. So I found that this model, um, in a way, serves as a, as a means or as a, as, as a vehicle to um, enriching our sense of the reality that we are in. And this both goes back in terms of the understanding of dukkha. So in other words, when we experience the world as described here, we then pay attention to the specific features of anicca, it's always changing. Dukkha, that it is unreliable, um, it's in some senses tragic, if nothing else because it is fated, as we saw in the meditation yesterday, to stop, to end at any moment. And that to me evokes a sense that I can only find, uh, the best word for me is poignancy. There's something deeply poignant about 
our experience here. Let me read out a passage from a novel. This is by J.M.G. Leclésio. Has anyone heard of him? It's always nice to have an intellectual. J.M.G. He won the Nobel Prize three years ago. J.M.G. Leclésio. This is from a book called Terra Amata, The Loved World. The Loved Earth, actually. And this is just a passage from a, a chapter called A Living Man. And it's in the masculine because the subject, the hero of the novel, is a man. You could try to express what bliss it was in those days to be alive. Of course, there were bothersome things too, here and there. Terrible things, if you look too closely. There was the dreadful burden of everything that's too much alive. All that mingles with air, earth and water in an attempt to destroy you. There was the malice of men the veracity of beasts, and the indifference of objects. There were all the sounds and sights and smells like continual dagger thrusts in the flesh. It wasn't easy to live with all those things. No, no one could have said it was easy. But all the same, it was funny in a way, touching and funny. A splendid adventure complete with emotion, language, consciousness and perhaps in some recess of the memory a kind of nostalgia for silence and peace. Yes, what was happening to you was an unforgettable and unique adventure. No one else would ever know about it and no one would ever really want to know. And yet you had been there one day on earth a living man. These are the guys that win the Nobel Prize for Literature, so. <laughs> so it's Terra, if you're interested in the book, it's, it's a beautiful book, it's called Terra Amata, it's Latin. T-E-R-R-A-A-M-A-T-A. Can you spell the author's name? J-M-G, L-E, Clesio. C L E Egu accent bearing right I Z I O J M G Le Clesio. Is that up in English? Well, it's what, not, not my translation. Yes, it's from Penguin Modern Classics, page 20. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's one of his earliest books. Um, and again, I think that's an example of how literature, it's, it's curious that passage because it's got so many Buddhist sort of words in it. It almost sounds like a sort of Abhidharma kind of thing. And yet I don't, I'm not aware that Leclesio knows the first thing about Buddhism. Though he spends part of his year in New Mexico, so he probably does. <laughs> <laughs> now again, you see, to me, that, that passage... Um, uh, evokes very much the, the, not only the aesthetic sense of this experience, but also its poignancy. And, it, and it's, also, it's wonderful he starts out what bliss it was, and then he starts thinking. But I don't think he's contrasting the two. I think he's recognizing that when you really do recognize the dagger thrusts that he describes it, that that's utterly integral and unavoidably part of the sheer bliss of being here. We have to get out of this idea and again I think this is why I really don't like this happiness stuff in Buddhism because it really tends to sort of say well we can get rid of suffering and we can have happiness. That really misses the point. That the deepest happiness I would argue lies in a deep embrace of the suffering and the tragedy of life. And this is what we find in that passage that I cited. It's in here. Uh, I do not say that the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths is accompanied by suffering and displeasure. It is only accompanied by happiness and joy. The Buddha. Same point. So to, to try not to get caught up into this dualism, which is basically a hedonistic worldview, that we can dispense with suffering and just be happy. Of course, that feeds our Western uh, 
um, hedonistic, individualistic uh, desire not to have to deal with pain. But it is highly unrealistic. And I think it compromises something very central, not only to Buddhist teaching, but also, I think, to much of the world's traditions, um, uh, let's say deep spiritual traditions. You cannot separate happiness from suffering. They're part and parcel of the same thing. And this, I think, going back to the point that Nikki asked me to say something more about, touches into what we call the sublime. The experience of sublimity. The sublime being very different from the beautiful. The beautiful is always agreeable. It's always very attractive, appealing. But it's not necessarily sublime. Sublime again, touches into this paradox of how, at the deepest level of experience, something can be simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. In other words, simultaneously painful and blissful. As the Leclesio is, in a sense, in that passage, trying to capture the sense of sublimity. And I think that's an aspect in our tradition, too, that we are in danger of losing particularly in our superficial, commercial, commodified culture. We just want pleasure. We're told we have a right to pleasure, to happiness. And that, I think, severs our connection to the depth and the richness of life, which which cannot be contained in either of those ideas. Now, I think this is what the Buddha was pointing to by this encouragement to embrace dukkha, to fully know dukkha, is not just to feel more miserable, but on the contrary, it's only by opening our minds and our hearts to the tragic dimension of our life and life as a whole, that we can really begin to um, be aware of how extraordinary, how astonishing, how miraculous it all is without invoking God or anything like that, which again just gets in the way. Now now we're on the topic of, of the arts again. Um, I'd like to just um, show you some uh, images. I meant to do this earlier in the tree, but I forgot. And to consider how Buddhist art um, relates to this. Buddhist art that most of us are aware of is basically iconographic. I mean, the classic Buddhist images are, especially in the Theravada and the Tibetan traditions, are really about making very nice, beautiful representations of the Buddha and the Arhants and the Bodhisattvas and the deities and so on. In East Asian art, East Asian Buddhist art, in the Zen tradition, we find a whole other aesthetic that I think often very, gets very close to capturing that sense of sublimity. Uh, my favourite examples of this actually are the Japanese artist uh, Sengei. You, you know Sengei's frog and his brush. He takes incredibly simple everyday things and just rapidly draws them. And yet Sengei's frog is more than a frog. Uh, Sengei's broomstick is more than a broomstick. And perhaps the most moving of the Japanese Zen artists are the self-portraits of Hakuin. Of Hakuin Zenji, who's 18th century Japanese Zen master, reformer of the Rinzai tradition. He he does these extraordinary self-portraits. Just simple brushstrokes. And you have, they're to me of the level of the late Rembrandt self-portraits. You have this, 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 this vulnerable, um, curious eyes peering out of you from the scroll in a way that is, is deeply moving, I find. There's a kind of yearning. Uh, and yet at the same time, a sense that this is someone who really understands something quite profound. But the Buddhist art that I've been, I've been very interested in recently is the early Buddhist art we find um, in India, and in some museums in the West, the Buddhist art that is pre-iconic, 
the, or an iconic. In other words, for the first 500 years after the Buddha, uh, the Buddhist community refused to represent the Buddha in a human form. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have um, imagery. They did. But they had imagery where the Buddha was either absent or represented symbolically. Now these are some examples. These are photographs I actually took with my mobile phone in the British Museum a few weeks ago and then tarted up on iPhoto. It's amazing. These are from Amaravati in southern India. This is a beautiful image. I'll pass it round. Basically this is the Bodhi tree with an empty throne and surrounded by beautiful buxom women making offerings. Now it's um, I think it's extraordinary. Um, here you have uh, the Buddha represented quite literally as an emptiness. In other words, uh, the Buddha is, uh, is not presented as something or someone but really as um, an open set of possibilities. And as soon as you start representing the Buddha iconographically, you have to make certain choices. Is he smiling, or does he look a bit glum? Has he got his hands behind his back? Or is, what, what, what do you do with his hands? What do you do with his legs? What you, you have to make decisions inevitably. Hmm? I think he's sitting on them. Uh-huh. He's probably sitting on them. He's surrounded by all the beautiful Well, have a look, have a look. So as soon as, you have to make, as soon as you have to make those aesthetic choices, you've basically limited the figure. So in, especially in Tibetan Buddhist iconography, you get endless mudras and gestures and all this kind of stuff, which is, and it's beautifully done, but each one is only a, fra- a fraction of the whole. I think, possibly, I don't know why they, they didn't rep- represent the Buddha, but I like to think it's because they didn't want to do that reductive move. They wanted to leave the, the space open and undefined. Now, this is another one. This is, a, this is a small, this is also from Amaravati, just an empty throne. Here. And this one um, is the only example of its kind I've ever seen. It comes from Gandhara. It's probably about 2nd century BC. And it's the Buddha represented as the sun, as the Aditya, the sun. Um, This is a small little bas-relief about that big. And um, again, I I find this, the Buddha is always associated with the sun. In fact, in Tibetan they call him Nime Nyen. Remember, The, 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 the friend of the sun, Aditya Nita. The friend of the sun. Now partly this has to do because the Buddha himself describes himself as belonging to the Aditya Gota, the lineage of the sun. It appears that the Sakyan people were formerly uh, worshippers, where they were, they, were, they were part of a solar cult. But the, but the association of the Buddha with the sun continued. Now the sun is a very powerful metaphor. Again, it's a, power, it's a metaphor of life. It's a metaphor that encompasses both light, radiance, as well as warmth. And the sun, again, we know this today, perhaps in those days they weren't so aware of it. We also know the sun is constantly giving itself away. The sun is, is burning up like fire. And I suppose in those days too, they would have known that it too would be impermanent. That it's burning itself up. And in, in destroying itself, it is giving life. And that, I think, is a very powerful way of thinking, not only of the Buddha, but also if we strive to emulate the Buddha as Buddhists, then that's a metaphor too that we can use in our own practice. To what extent are, is our practice a way of burning ourselves up? of consuming our egotism, our greeds, our hatreds, our confusions, and in doing so, ourself, if you're consuming our ego, 
but not as just an end in itself, but because that combustion, as it were, is a giving away. We can even understand Nibbana in this way. Nibbana is is considered to be the the blowing out of a a fire, or the extinguishing of a fire. But in a way, when a fire is being blown out, it's also being given away. Maybe maybe that that doesn't quite work. Maybe not, I don't know. In any case, we can um, reflect at least on the Buddha as somehow comparable to the sun. If you're interested, this also ties in with Don Cupid's idea of solar living, um, which again is one of the one one of the connections I made to this. I sent Don Cupid this. He's got it on his mantelpiece now in his office. It's um, so this again. I think the and in terms of, of of how Buddhist art might work today, my argument would be that just in the same way as we go back to the earliest texts just in the same way as we go back to try to recover the humanity of the Buddha, I think Buddhist art perhaps needs to go back to this pre-iconic state. In other words, to return to this art of emptiness. An art without, you know, inherit, leaving behind the formal imagery of Asian iconography and returning to, in a sense, an open space. Now, how that will pan out, God knows. I was therefore not too disappointed when the Taliban destroyed the Bamiyan Buddhas. <laughs> I think they, they opened up a space. And I think the way to, to subvert, to, to, in a sense, uh, use that, would not be to deplore the destruction, and, and there are some silly project to try to rebuild them, but actually to say, right, this now is a shrine to emptiness. We should now, as Buddhists, go there and celebrate its return to the origins of the way the Buddha was represented. No one there. I can email these pictures, by the way. I'll put them onto Victor's computer. I've got them on my memory stick. So this, I think, brings us... um, Again, perhaps, to a reflection on, um, on what it means to be a person. And I'd like to uh, just read a few passages that start on page 28 of your handout. Starting with a verse that, uh, for me, is a very important one, another foundational text for secular Buddhism. And that's the eight, verse 80 of the Dharmapada. Just as a farmer, you got it? Just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions his, an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the sage tames the self. Now here we have um, uh, a passage in which the word self, atta, atman, is being used in a totally non-problematic way. Um, One of the other problems with uh, a lot of Buddhism is that people have the idea that the Buddha said there was no self. This is nonsense, I'm afraid. it's um, simply not the case, and here is a very clear example. The Buddha is actually saying that the, the, the self, you, and again, the Buddha doesn't distinguish between the self and the ego, or the self and the I. It's all one word, it's atta, self. The same word is in anatta, not self, and you've noticed that I don't say no self, but not self. Again, if you want to Uh, A good example of that, read the Buddha's second sermon, The Mark of Not-Self, and you'll see that nowhere in that text does he deny that there's a self. He just says, you are not the body, you're not the feelings, you're not the perceptions, you're not these things. Those things are not-self. He's not saying there's no self. The the self uh, 
the, what the Buddha and but the Buddha is not clearly saying that there exists a, an Atman in the sense of the Brahmanic idea that there is some eternal self that is identical in nature with God, something that never changes, pure being, pure radiance and light and such it and up. It's not that's clearly not the idea either. He's moved away from that, but he hasn't gone into the rejection of self. Now somewhere, why is it not there? There's this marvellous passage by with Vachagota. Um which I thought was here. Where is it? Where is the Vachagota? 31. Hmm? 31. 31? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, there we go. I, for some reason, I put it under the middle way. Uh, actually, I think for a good reason, I put it under the middle way. Uh, here we, too, get a very clear uh, account of the Buddha's sense of self. He says, he's talking to this guy, Vachagota, who's a a figure who occurs a lot in the Pali text. He's, a, he's not a Buddhist, but he's someone who has very very pointed questions. So Vajra says, How is it, Master Gautama? Is there a self? The Buddha remains silent. Vajra said, Then how is it, Master Gautama? Is there no self? The Buddha again remains silent. So Vajra got up from his seat and went away. The Buddha turned to his attendant, Ananda, and said, if I had answered there is a self, this would have been siding with those who are eternalists. So in other words, he's not going to affirm the existence of some self because that would lead to the idea that it's somehow permanent and whatever. But if I had answered there is no self, that would have been siding with those who are nihilists. So the Buddha avoids the extreme of presenting the self as a kind of fixed, self-existent, um, unchanging, separate thing. But he also rejects the idea that there's no self at all. So the idea of the middle way likewise applies to the self. Now I think the Dhammapada passage um, gives us a third clue um, as to what it is then that does constitute the self as the Buddha understands it. It's not the permanent self, it's not non-existent. If you look at this passage, what I think the Buddha is saying is the self is a project to be realized. The self is a project to be realized. Just as a farmer irrigates his field, a fletcher fashions an arrow, a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the wise person, the pandita, the sage, tames or works with the self. Now this, uh, this again is a middle way approach. It's not denying there is a self, but it's not affirming that the self is a constant, unchanging thing. The self, like anything else, is a process. You are a process. You are basically a task to be performed in the same way that a farmer, in order to get his field to be able to produce crops, needs to irrigate it. I think each of these images is very, very telling. The Buddha is comparing us to an unirrigated field. In other words, a barren, uh, fruitless kind of uh, life. We need, therefore, to cut channels into that field. We need to allow water, water imagery again, entering the stream, etc., the ocean, the raft on the river. We need to cut channels into this, um, into our life, basically. We need to open up ways of behaving. And here we get the basic Buddhist virtues of mindfulness, awareness, wisdom, compassion, tolerance. By practicing these things, we are, as it were, opening up those uh, channels so that that sort of behavior becomes more and more second nature. That's kind of what we do. And as we do that, we dig those channels. Um, the habits of anger, greed, selfishness, those channels 
dry eyes. I mean, that's very behavioural in terms of psychology. But nonetheless, I think it's a, a valuable way of looking at this practice. It's something that we're constantly digging away at. So when we, in terms of this model, when we respond through intention and attention to the field of our experience, we are, in a way, carving channels in it. We're digging trenches. We're opening up new avenues. So it's not a passive observing of the world, as we sometimes get the impression, but that observation and that attention actually begins to change the world. I think as someone once said, the task of the philosopher is not to explain the world, but to change it. Who is that? 11th thesis on Feuerbach. Yeah, 11th thesis on Feuerbach. That was Carlo Marx. (laughs) 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 Yes. But this is the same thing, and I do think this is important, because awareness and, uh, and mindfulness often think that we just look at the world a little bit more intently. We have to see that our actions... Our chetana and our manasikara, which then becomes the basis for sati and sampajanya, are actually um, a constitutive elements that are interwoven with the fabric of our world. So as we work on them, we're actually transforming the whole system of experience, the whole nature of experience, like a farmer irrigates his field. I mean, this is such a, a positive image that we can try to, and it goes so closely with this idea of living in such a way that our life is enabled to flourish. Udaimonia uh, in Greek. This idea that, um, uh, you know, the, the aim of life is to really optimize the potentials we have as human persons to live fully. And the Eightfold Path for me is a metaphor for living fully in all capacities that we have. As a Fletcher fashions an arrow. Again, we don't have time to go into this in any great detail. I gave a talk at this on the, at the Blue Gum Sangha, but it wasn't recorded. It's a good talk. <laughs> it wasn't recorded. So, <clears throat> we've got a, a briefer version here. So, fashioning an arrow. Again, just reflect on that metaphor. What does that mean to make one's life more like an arrow? An arrow is something that you put together from different elements so that you create, a, in this case, a, um, a tool that can be directed unerringly towards a target. It's about a life that is focused on realizing its goals rather than a life that's sort of like a, a, a buckled arrow. It just sort of goes... You know, sometimes when they misfire these rockets, you see them sort of going... Rather than going bang on target. So it's about focus, about bringing our energies, our elements of our experience into an integrated focus, concentration, integration, samadhi. I think we can understand also, not just as deep states of meditation, but actually about an integrating and focusing our life as a whole on its goals. A carpenter shaping a piece of wood. In other words, we start out as kind of rough rough diamonds. Um, rough bits of wood that don't have any you know, great interest or value until they're worked. In other words, this Nama Rupa Vinyana is something, is in a bit, the Nama Rupa is a bit like a block of wood. It's something that we can fashion, we can work, we can shape. So our life, in a sense, becomes like, it is a project to shape and form and change and transform. There's something, again, artistic about it. It's not assuming that we're like this and we can become a Buddha. It's recognizing that we are all of these elements are not self, they're not me, they're not mine. They are nonetheless elements that we can uh, configure and conform into a more focused and in a more flourishing life. And this is what the Buddha means by self. Self as process, self as narrative, which again is not an exclusively Buddhist idea. It's not even a Buddhist idea, it's my interpretation of this stuff. 
But I, I think that one of the metaphors we can usefully think of as talking of, of self is that our, we are like stories. We are like a narrative that is moving towards some sort of resolution or conclusion. We may never reach that conclusion because life is constantly open-ended. But we are, as it were, the telling of a story. And, 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 and a, a, a life that is really um, exemplary is one that actually tells and unfolds as a narrative. Um, think of, say, the Dalai Lama or Gandhi or Mandela. These are the people whose lives are made into movies because they've somehow achieved uh, a, a story in their own lives that has a kind of universal narrative appeal. Most of our lives, although we think they're terribly interesting, um, turn out probably wouldn't make very exciting movies. You know, Stephen Bachelor, the movie. I don't think it would be terribly interesting. I don't know. Maybe I could play myself. Now I would settle for no one less than Richard Gere. He's the only one who really understands what it's all about. Okay. Um, Now, let's just go through these the passages that that make up the the rest of this section before we conclude. This is uh, the next piece is. um, So we've talked about self. Now we're going to talk about others. Um. This is a passage from the Sanyuta Nikaya section 1 uh, concerning King Pasenadi of Kosala. Those of you who have read my book, my confession, will know all about King Pasenadi of Kosala. He's not a particularly appealing kind of guy. He's a tyrant, basically. Page 28, Bob. Page 20, 29, top, in my version, I'm afraid. So we're at Savati, and it says, Now on that occasion... King Pasenadi of Kursala had gone together with Queen Malika to the upper terrace of the palace. And the king said to the queen, Is there, is there Malika, anyone more dear to you than yourself? Now, I suggest this is what we would nowadays call fishing for compliments. Now you have to remember, King Pasenadi is, 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 is a brutal tyrant, he's hopelessly overweight, and he's fallen in love with Malika, who is the daughter of a garland maker, in other words, a relatively low caste. And he became infatuated with this girl when he was driving back into the city one day and he heard this singing from behind a wall. And he went into the compound and there was this beautiful girl, the daughter of the garland maker singing in this wonderful voice. And he spent the afternoon with lying on with his head on her lap. Mm-hmm. And then he said, you're going to be my queen, baby. And so they then go back to the palace. And, um, and so you've got this picture. You've got a really kind of ugly guy, very powerful, with this beautiful young wife. And now he's basically wants someone to say something nice about him. Is there anyone, Malika? Do anyone more dear to you than yourself? And Malika says, Oh, there's no one, great king, more dear to me than myself. But is there anyone, great king, more dear to you than yourself? And then the king replies, For me too, Malika, there is no one more dear than myself. You know, reality dawned. Then King Pasenadi descended from the palace and approached the Buddha. This would probably have meant... I mean, you can actually go to Sarvati, the remains of Sarvati, the city, and um, it's, still, it's, still, it's, still visible, it's still... This place is still visible today. It's, it's covered in earth and dirt. Uh, but it, you could, the, the ruins of the ancient city are still there, and the ruins of the ramparts. And the Jetta Grove, where the Buddha lived, is about half a mile away. So the Buddha... Persenity would have gone to Jetta's Grove. 
and related to him the conversation with Queen Malika. Then the Buddha recited this verse. Having traversed all quarters with the mind, one finds none anywhere dearer than oneself. Likewise, each person holds himself most dear. Maybe not the answer you'd expect. But the conclusion is, therefore, one who loves himself should not harm others. It's, it's, very, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, verse. Because the Buddha's, the Buddha's not pretending that, in fact, it is the case. We all are basically primarily concerned about our own survival, our own, as Spinoza said, that we persist in our own being. You know, you might try to pretend that you don't do that. <laughs> I'm a selfless Buddhist. Da, 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 da. But, if you're really honest, we are organisms that are self-interested. Now, the point of that is not to try to suppress it, deny it, but to recognize that that's true for everyone. And therefore, you should treat others as you would have them treat yourself. Now, that, of course, is the, you know, that's Jesus, right? But, here we have a passage just below. This is from the Sutta Nipata, which you now know to be the oldest bit of the Pali Canon, 400 years before Christ, where the Buddha says exactly the same thing. He says, as I am, so are they. As are they, so am I. Comparing himself with others, he should not kill or cause to kill. It's exactly the same moral sentiment. Exactly the same. And I think it's, the, it's, it's clearly expressed also in the dialogue with Persemide. So you have here the basis for, uh, the, the, the basis for moral behavior. You do good because you know how others suffer just as you do. You do good because you know that others do not wish to be killed just as you do not wish to be killed. Again, Shantideva picks this up in the 8th chapter of the Bodhicharya Avatar and extends it even further in beautiful metaphors and imagery. I would recommend reading that as well. Uh, chapter 8 of the Bodhicharya Avatara, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, from verse 90, I think, isn't it? I think. The second half of the 8th chapter. We don't have time to go into that now. But this, I think, is... Um, and again, the idea is clearly not... Uh, the trouble is, you see, Mahayana Buddhism claims to have the, eth- the ethical higher ground. And I think many of its teachings are very valuable because they do express these things more explicitly. But I think the root ideas are already here in the early canon. And um, finally, I'd like to look at uh, a passage which for me is one of the most most powerful passages uh, in the Pali Canon. It's from the Vinaya, not from the Suttas. Now at that time, a certain monk was suffering from dysentery. He lay fallen in his own excrements. Then the Buddha, as he was touring the lodgings with his attendant Ananda, approached that monk's dwelling place and spoke to him. What's your disease, monk? Lord, I have dysentery. But have you no one to tend you? No, Lord. Why do the monks not tend to you? I'm no use to the monks, therefore they don't tend to me. Then the Buddha addressed the venerable Ananda, Go, Ananda, bring water, we will bathe the monk. So the Buddha sprinkled on the water and the venerable Ananda washed him over. The Buddha took him by the head, the venerable Ananda by the feet. And having raised him up, they laid him down on a couch. Then the Buddha had the monks convened and said, Why are you not attending to your sick brother, monks? Lord, this monk is of no use to the monks, therefore the monks do not tend to him. Monks, you have not a father, you have not a mother who might tend to you. If you monks do not tend to each other, then who is there who will tend to you? Whoever monks would tend to me should tend to the sick. 
Now, frankly, I find that more powerful than anything in the Mahayana Sutras. The, the problem with the Mahayana Sutras is that they're always at a level of abstraction. You can't imagine the Buddha, the Mahayana Buddha, washing up a month's shit. So that ain't going to happen. It's, it's, very, uh, the beauty, it's a very beautiful vision to liberate all sentient beings from suffering, but it is rarely expressed in a way that focuses down to a specific episode where the monk, where, where the Buddha is actually caring for a sick monk who's lying in a pool of shit and piss. And the concluding uh, sentence um, I think is, 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 is very important. Whoever monks would tend to me should tend to the sick. In other words, the Buddha is actually identifying himself with a sick monk. He says, if you care for what I'm saying, for what I'm doing, for what I stand for, then you should tend to the sick. Now here again, we have another way of understanding embrace dukkha. Embrace dukkha doesn't mean to do so in any abstract way. It means to actually embrace the suffering of the sick person. Not the person in an abstract sense, but this person and that person. Your friend, your mother, the guy who's homeless. Of course, it's very similar to the verse that I put beneath from Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This is Jesus identifying with the sick um, and those in prison and those naked. And I've always found that passage in the Gospels to be, um, to be really utterly central to what the whole message is. And I'd always been slightly disappointed that I didn't find in the Buddhist text a similar passage. Um, despite all of the stuff about infinite compassion, uh, the, the, the specificity was lacking. And it's only, I'm afraid this is the only passage in the whole of the Pali Canon where you get this specificity. And it's tucked away in the vineyard. It's very, I don't know how many of you had come across it before you read it, read it here. It must have been the life of the Buddha. It might be, yeah. It could be in the Anamoli's life of the Buddha. I'm not sure it is, actually. It might be. No, it does appear here and there. It's on existence. It's on existence. I'm good. No, I'm glad. But, um, it's again possible, a bit like the Kalama Sutta, that it's, it, it's emphasized, becoming to be more emphasized now because of the audience that we are. I don't think it was, I don't think it was even translated, oh it must have been translated into Tibetan, because it's in the Vinaya. But again, I've never heard a Tibetan mention. And I, it, it's, it, I find it also very powerful because again, it really humanizes the Buddha. This is not someone who is you know, got a big bump on his head and radiant light and dharma chakras and stuff. This is a real person dealing with a real immediate dukkha situation. So, um, again, this for me would be a foundational passage for a secular Buddhism. This is of this world, of this time, of the Buddha's time and the Buddha's world. And it... Um, also serves as a very crucial passage to um, give us a foundation for how to respond and work with the suffering of the world in a concrete way. So the sick person, the imprisoned person, the hungry person can be seen as the Buddha. That's the impression. I mean, you get that in... Um, you know, uh, in Mahayana Buddhism too, all sentient beings uh, are to be seen as Buddhas. Uh, you get that in Shantideva. Uh, so it's there. Again, I would read Shantideva, um, particularly chapter 5, which is on mindfulness. It's one of the best accounts of my mindfulness. Parts of chapter 6, particularly at the very end of chapter 6, uh, there's a beautiful verse there where the Buddha says, uh, Shantideva says, if the Buddhas identify themselves with all sentient beings, how can they ever experience joy? How can they ever experience happiness? If you take this idea of 
identifying yourself with others, which I argue is something implicit within the first noble truth. Embracing dukkha is embracing the suffering of the world. And as your self-consciousness, in a sense, begins to get eroded, there, there is necessarily an empathetic relationship to the other that is a kind of identity. You feel the suffering of the other. And if you do, it's very difficult to then aspire again to just be happy. Where does that fit? I don't think it does. But on the other hand, to work and address the suffering of others like that is what we find to be perhaps one of the most fulfilling, albeit most difficult things to do. I mean, the passage in the text where, he, where the monk says, the other monks don't treat me because I don't, don't tend to me because I'm of no use to them. That, that sounds almost impossibly cruel and cold. But, um, and I think it's probably somewhat exaggerated. But on the other hand, if you think about it, and I've thought about this quite a lot, you know, my, with my mother, for example, I'd much rather not have to ring her up every day. <laughs> if, if, you know, my, I, I can see my self-interest kick, kicking in. That we do tend to ignore those who are suffering, who are sick, uh, who are in pain, who can't contribute, in a sense, any more actively to life. I mean, how easy is it for us to slip into a kind of negligence, a kind of ignoring, a kind of forgetting, I don't think we go and say, I'm not caring for them because they don't do anything for us. But, if you think about it, there is a cruel truth in there, I'm afraid. I mean, again, check it out in your own life. When was the last time you found out your great aunt is living all by herself somewhere, or whatever? And what the implication of that is, if you ignore such people, you're ignoring the Buddha. If you're not tending to them, you're not tending to the Buddha. You're not tending to your own awakening. You're not tending to your own practice that we've been talking about and getting so enthusiastic about. And then finally, I'll I'll, I'll just... uh, There's this passage here which someone mentioned the other day. Let's read it out. Again, this is about how we communicate, how we relate to others. One should know what it is to extol and what it is to disparage And knowing both, one should neither extol nor disparage, but should teach only the dumb. One should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that, one should pursue pleasure within oneself. One should not utter covert speech, and one should not utter overt sharp speech. One should speak unhurriedly, not hurriedly. One should not insist on local language, and one should not override normal usage. This is all about middle way, basically. Um, You need to find this middle way by being too sort of colloquial and idiomatic on the one hand, and being somehow too abstruse and technical and highfalutin on the other. Difficult line to draw. This is the summary of the exposition of non-conflict. And then finally, um, this injunction that you find, I've given one, one source for it, but you find this passage, again, right through the canon. Wander forth, monks, for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of gods and men. And let no two of you go the same way. Now to me, this again is a very clear imperative to, in a sense, not just practice for your own benefit, but once you've grounded yourself in this practice, and again I would argue that this starts with entering the stream that we spoke of, then it is, in a sense, one's duty to go forth into the world. And crucially, not to go forth as a kind of collective bunch of people, in some sort of mass, but each person to go their own way. So this once again is a... He, do, do, he doesn't say, um, and then you should set up lots of big Dharma centers. 
In other words, which I am not disparaging Darmason, because I want to find a middle way between disparaging and extolling, of course. But uh, I think sometimes we tend to do that. This was a business we spoke of last night. Well, let's create a secular Buddhist church. I'm not sure that's the point. I think the point, in many ways, is to find your own way, is to pursue what is most... Uh, important, what is most valuable, perhaps what is most sacred in your life, and to live that to the full, and let whatever follows take care of itself. But it's again quite an emphasis on self-reliance, which of course is the, the fourth of these four principles that I've outlined. Um, and again, one that... Um, Again, easy to say, difficult to do. So we'll stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.